So, um, okay, let's pray. Our Father, Our Lady Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Saint Michael, pray for us. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Dr. Cutback is shaking hands in the hallway, and so we have Dr. Cutback with us. that Sabatino talks longer than I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's the good news for you. Of course, that still doesn't mean I'll be short. Well, it's uh, a great honor as always to be here. Um, we, we, we did have the handout made. Is, is that right, Sabatino? Yes. And, uh, well, um, my topic uh, this evening is, is well, um, somewhat bracing, and uh, nonetheless, it strikes me as, as, as a topic that it, it, it very much behooves us, and I'd say that our, our Lord would want us to look at and remind ourselves of. So I'm going to jump right in, and, and the first quotation on the sheet is one that I, I didn't say, who, the other thing, it, it says who said it, when it was said. That one I didn't, I didn't put on there, so I'm just, going to, I'm just going to read it to you first. We are now standing in the face of the greatest historical confrontation humanity has gone through. I do not think wide circles of American society or wide circles of the Christian community realize this fully. We are now facing the final confrontation between the church and the anti-church of the gospel versus the anti-gospel. That was said in November of 1978 in the first visit of Pope John Paul II to our country. Isn't that a, a rather amazing thing to come to a country and to say to the people? We are clearly in a war. The, the image of warfare has always been central in Christianity. I, I dare say something we don't hear so much about anymore. There, there's our last Supreme Pontiff put, putting it up front and center. Let's, let's look at two things from Scripture that also put it up front and center. If you say the night prayer of the church, you are very familiar with 1 Peter 5.8, the number two quotation on, the, on your handout. Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firming your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering is required of your brotherhood throughout the world. And then the, the truly classic uh, text, 
at the end of St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. I'd like to begin with the assertion that it seems to me that it very much behooves us as Christians to make ourselves very conscious of the fact that we are in the heart of an all-stakes war. This, this isn't, this isn't a, a, a huge analogy. It's the strongest sense of the term war. It is the most total war that is conceivable. And we might say it, it is truly what our life is about. And so for starters, surely it's absolutely essential in our waging a war and waging it successfully that we would be aware of a few things. First of all, that we're in one. And hopefully even just those references to scripture bring that to mind. So we kind of put on that mindset. We are in a war and we should see that as a fundamental paradigm for understanding where we stand and how we spend our time from morning until evening. We also surely need to know how and where it's being waged. Finally, we'd want to know what weapons are at our disposal. My focus here this evening is primarily the second one. How and where is the war being waged? Also, as we begin this evening, the third one of what weapons are at our disposal. But that will be the main focus of my lecture for next week. Because there, we're actually going to go back to Ephesians. And I didn't put the full quotation here. We'll have the full quotation next week. I'm going to use some commentary on Ephesians from the doctors of the church. They're going to help us understand. St. Paul goes through in detail what the armor of God is. So that is what I'm going to do a week from today. Which is, again, our making ourselves aware of what weapons are at our disposal. The point of this evening is to meditate a little bit on how and where the war is being waged to have a sense of the context of the war itself before we go on to look at the actual weapons. I've chosen to do that to particularly focus on a theme that comes from Pope John Paul II, and that is the theme of a culture of death. I, I just find it an, an incredibly uh, provocative, evocative notion that he uses. And it seems to me that in his understanding, and I think in our own experience, we can see that what he called the culture of death 
is in fact a major weapon in the arsenal of the evil one against us. So that's why I want to talk this evening and think with you and meditate a little bit upon the culture of death, how it functions, what its roots are, what its fruits are, what the antidote to it is, because functionally what it is, is again a major aspect of how our enemy in this war is working against us. And right off the bat, I want to I throw something at you. It's, it's funny, maybe you found something that I found often when you read the saints' lives uh, from the Middle Ages. There are these, there are these stories about them, <coughs> yep, demons appearing and, 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 the, and, the, and the saints wrestling with them. Or it, it, it seems, gosh, in the Middle Ages, it seems that demons were kind of everywhere and people would see them and they talk about them a lot. Well, it does seem that it's true. I mean, I'm, I'm sure those stories are true. And at times, we might be tempted to think, well, what about now? Are, are, are they not as active? And I'd just like to throw out at you for your consideration that we, of course, need to remind ourselves there is no enemy who is more sly than our enemy. My thought is, in the Middle Ages, in a Christian civilization, everyone was quite aware that they were there. They might as well come out and try to directly affect people. There was no reason, as it were, to hide, for it was constantly evident to Christians that they were there. So there's no reason for them not to be, shall we say, extremely present and proactive. Visibly. Which they can do if they want to, if they think it serves their purposes. It seems clear that the enemy, in his wisdom, is not doing that. Not, oh, here I am as the evil one who's trying to take you to hell. Indeed, at that time, again, everyone was very aware of hell. So he wouldn't be giving them any help, as it were, by speaking about help, for they were already aware of it. I dare say today, were the evil fallen angels to be more present, that actually might jar some of us into realizing we've got a problem. So I just throw out at you, what we have to deal with today is a culture that in many of its fundamental outlines is clearly designed by them, not by Christians, and not by the holy angels. They are at least as active. It only stands to reason, as the end comes closer, that they'd be more active. And we, of course, need to worry more when the enemy is not visible to us. So what is the culture of death? We don't think I need, we don't need to go into the etymology of culture and exactly what the term culture means. Let's just, let's just put it this way. I think what we can say the culture of death is, is it is a complex way of living that in fact encourages spiritual death. 
Again, a culture of death is a complex way of living that encourages spiritual death. I think something that, that people tended to miss in what Pope John Paul II was doing, he introduced the notion of the culture of death in his encyclical Evangelium Vitae, where one of the things that people most noted about it, as well they should have, was he addressed abortion. And so people particularly think of a culture of death is where, okay, abortion is going on and people are dying. There's very good reason for that connection, for indeed a culture of death does kill people. It kills them bodily, yes. But it's very clear in John Paul II's understanding, the more essential aspect of it, and the more, as you might say, consistent aspect of it, is it's killing people spiritually. It only kills so many bodily. But its very force is to be killing all of us. I'm not saying it succeeds, but this is where its force is going, to be killing us spiritually. So we're thinking in terms of a structures of a culture that are literally designed to bring about our spiritual death. On your quotation sheet, look at what Pope John Paul II. I just give you, I just give you one from his Evangelium Vitae in English: The Gospel of Life, section twenty-one. So this is the fourth quotation. He says, "We have to go to the heart of the tragedy being experienced by modern man. The tragedy, the eclipse of the sense of God and man." typical of a social and cultural climate dominated by secularism, which with its ubiquitous, omnipresent, tentacles, succeeds at times in putting Christian communities themselves to the test. He chooses extremely evocative language. This is a culture that's dominated by secularism, a rejection of God. And it has ubiquitous tentacles. It shows up in every aspect of our lives. I, I just I think of hmm. arts, entertainment, government, education, food, medicine, in the heart of our homes, music, television. Pope John Paul II had eyes to see. It didn't mince words. It's ubiquitous and it deals out death. Most of all, interior death. Death of the interior life. Not the death that we see happening. So what are its roots? Now I, I want to right off the bat say in looking at roots and fruits in antidote, I've, I've chosen to offer meditation by, by, by looking at a few things. I wanted, to, I wanted to keep it focused on a few things where you say, here's a way of understanding what the roots is. Here's a way of understanding what some of the fruits are. Here's a way of looking at the antidote. Because I, I, I don't uh, purport to be giving a, a, a scholarly exposition of here's all you need to know about what John Paul II, for instance, would have said about everything that's at the root of the culture of death and all of its fruits. No, I've just chosen to meditate with you on some things I think we could say are 
not capturing the whole thing, not. Nonetheless, I think they are going to the center of it. So I'm to say that up front. What do I want to suggest is the main root of the culture of death? Forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. Christians, I'd like to suggest, forget who, I was going to say they, I should say we, are. Christians forget who we are. And I present for your consideration that that is why we have a culture of death. We do not think with Christ. We do not, as St. Paul told us to do, we do not put on the mind of Christ. We forget who we are. We forget the mind of Christ, even if we've learned it at some point along the line. And that is the main reason that there is a culture of death. And in my mind, it really is critical that we, re that we start to blame ourselves. I mean, yes, there, there are enemies. But we know as Christians, the enemies could do nothing to us if we weren't letting them. And so Christians are causing the culture of death precisely by what we're not doing, or what we are doing, how, depending on how you look at it. And I'd like to say forgetfulness. If you would look now at your fifth quotation. Epistle of St. James. This is a rather striking image that he uses. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Okay, again, very bracing introduction. You know, all Christians are presumably hearing. We've all, we all hear, in some sense, of learned things about our faith, about the mind of Christ. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who observes his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Rather pathetic image, isn't it? But he who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer that forgets, but a doer that acts, he shall be blessed in his doing. And you know it was St. James who talked about it's, it, it's one thing to believe, it's another thing to act out your belief. We must act out our belief. And here he is characterizing our failure to be Christians in terms of forgetfulness. We've forgotten the mind of Christ. And then a culture of death happens. Pope John Paul II likes to speak of memory and forgetfulness, the wonderful juxtaposition between the two. 
I'm just going to give you one here from Evangelium Vitae, and I'll refer back uh, a little bit later, in a few minutes, to his referring to memory in the context of his talking about the rosary. Here he says, by living, number six, by living as if God did not exist, man not only loses sight, him obviously forgets, not only loses sight of the mystery of God, but also of the world and the mystery of his own being. So, if we want to build a case that forgetfulness then is the root of the culture of death, we want to talk a little bit more about that and might ask ourselves, why are we forgetful? Okay, we have a sense, alright, we can convict ourselves of, right, we are forgetful. We forget the mind of Christ. We aren't doers of the word. And if it weren't like that, there never would have been this culture of death. So let's take a step prior to that and ask ourselves, why are we forgetful? Again, there's a couple different ways we could have gone with that. But for the rest of our time this evening, I'd like to have our focus be upon one thing. And that is prayer. Four, we are forgetful because we are weak in our prayer. Prayer is the central key, according to our tradition, to remembering who we are. If we truly, truly have an interior life of prayer, we do not forget who we are. We don't hear and not do. Prayer is how we positively put on and keep on the mind of Christ. If you would look on the back side of the sheet you've been looking at. This is a, a, a spiritual writer you might be being introduced to here for the first time. His name is Father Edward Lean, he's an Irish priest of the um, early to mid 20th century, has a number of spiritual masterpieces. The one that I'm primarily quoting from here is a book that's called Progress Through Mental Prayer. It's been, it's also been republished, but the original um, hardbacks, the sheet in the word of 1940. I want you to have that um, reference. Uh, couldn't, couldn't recommend more of a, a, a book that you probably could find out there in used bookstores or wherever. <coughs> final end or goal of prayer, considered as a potent means for the development of God's life in the soul, is to emancipate us from natural habits of thought and affection and elevate us to a supernatural manner of thinking and willing, to change our natural outlook on life and things, and to make it supernatural. Isn't that powerful? That's what prayer does for us. The final end, that's a Thomistic terminology for the goal. The final end of prayer considers a potent means to the development of God's life in the soul. He's, he's very precise. He was a great reader of St. Thomas. The reason he says the end, the end of goal in the sense of the end is supposed to achieve in us. The more, more ultimate end of, of prayer is the praise of God. But what is its goal for us, and of course God most of all wants us to pray, 
not because it does anything for him, but because it does something for us. And so here, of course, Father Lean is saying, what did God intend prayer to do for us? To emancipate us from natural habits of thought and affection, elevate us to a supernatural manner of thinking and willing, to change our natural outlook on life and things, and to make it supernatural. Right there, if Christians prayed, could there be a culture of death? And here's, and, and, and here's the thing. Of course, there's different, different aspects of prayer. I'm not talking about we're not praying enough to end the culture of death. I'm talking about asking God to give us a better culture. I'm talking about prayer as what is supposed to make us be what we're supposed to be. Through prayer, we will be Christians who hear and keep the word. We will remember. If we remember, no culture of death. Second quotation from Pavelin. The habit of prayer makes us cease to judge sensually. It enables us to acquire the art of judging all things spiritually. So, what's the analysis that I'm, that I'm presenting here? At the root of the culture of death is our forgetfulness of the mind of Christ. Why are we forgetful of the mind of Christ? We do not pray well enough, and we do not pray enough. And I'd like the focus to be, I'm going to try to focus on myself, I'd like to have the, the focus of the rest of our meditation then be the connection between a culture of death and me not praying. I turn now then to fruits. That was on the, along the line of the root of the culture of death. Now a couple of thoughts as regards the fruits. Again, there's many ways to consider this. There are extremely dramatic fruits of the culture of death. It is worth a certain awe and trembling that even mention the unbelievable, but it must be mentioned, the unspeakable fruit that we are killing our children. Indeed, that is a fruit that we are contracepting is a key fruit of the culture of death. May I say this? Talk about the fruit of not praying. Any persons I present for your consideration who have a strong prayer life never do the aforementioned things. But I don't want to focus on those fruits as important as they are, as profoundly indicative of how we have a culture that is eating away our very life. I'd like to focus on something that perhaps is, is closer to home for us, and that is some key fruits of the culture of death are precisely various ways of life in this culture that now we're very used to. 
to perpetuate forgetfulness and a lack of prayer. And this is where I hope that these reflections might be very practical for us. And that the fruits that we can look at is the culture of death, as it were, bears stench-filled fruits in the form of ways of living that even we, Christians, have become very used to, that in various and sundry ways keep us from the kind of prayer life that would make us be real Christians. Here I'd like to offer a comment of what strikes me, particularly in this day and age, as a kind of silver bullet in the arsenal of the evil one. It's always struck me that all, when we think in terms of this warfare, I think it's true to say that all the evil one and his potent forces must do is distract us. They don't have to convince us that some way of life is better. Can, can, can you picture the evil one sitting down with someone and trying to convince you, no, really, you'll be more happy if you put all of your time into business and don't worry about your children and go ahead and contraception. This is happiness. He, the evil one doesn't give arguments. There aren't arguments for the way that, in fact, nonetheless, most people end up living. All he has to do is keep us distracted from the way of life that is true life, that takes a deep cultivation. This, this is, again, a, a, another, another bracing truth. Real life requires deep cultivation. And so I, 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 we might look at it in a kind of homey way. I, I, when I'm thinking about this, I meditate, I, I just almost picture, so where are the good angels having to think, okay, we got to come up with a plan here whereby we're going to be able to convey to these people all the things they're going to need to do in order to cultivate this amazing thing called Christianity. Because a lot of things, in fact, have to come together. It's like raising children. If you snooze, you lose. <laughs> But if you have it together, and it takes an awful lot that you need to bring together, as a word, you stand a chance. So, I mean, it's that way with, just, with our own life, too. I mean, really. I mean, it sounds kind of silly, but isn't it just true? The Christian life. You snooze, you lose. Whoops! All of a sudden, we're waking up one day, and ha, I'm about to die. And where have we gotten? 
So how many of us are being just, just kind of strung along? The evil one's not convincing us of anything. We're too smart for that. But at the same time, we're just flowing along with the flow of the culture. And we're not cultivating a deep interior life. That, that, that's, that, that was just this meditation by way of thinking in terms of, hmm, it, it's almost like it's pretty easy when you think about it, what the bad side needs to do. It takes great effort to remember who we are. And it takes great effort, doesn't it, to pray well. And as the great Father Hardin used to, used to say, it's only those who really pray, this is a paraphrase, but who really pray, who got to heaven. So let's consider a couple of aspects of our culture. What I want to do quickly, very quickly, and move towards a conclusion here, is see in a couple of aspects of our culture a fruit of our lack of prayer. And then, not only is it a fruit, but then it kind of turns around and is a root of it again. So I'll look at just a couple things that are kind of common fare in our culture, again, that I'd like to suggest come from the fact that we're not praying, and they lead back to our not praying. And the first of those is lack of mortification or attachments to bodily comfort. Isn't this something that is just so part and parcel of our culture? How important it is to be comfortable, bodily comfortable. How much money is spent researching how we can just have a little more pleasure, a little more comfort. Are we ever encouraged to think in terms of mortification? I'd like to suggest this emphasis of comfort it, it is a fruit of prayer, pardon me, a fruit of a lack of prayer, and it tends to cause a lack of prayer. How is it a fruit of the lack of prayer? Here's an extremely important insight from, from St. Thomas Aquinas. Prayer, one of the main things it brings about in us is it gives us a taste for the spiritual. Prayer gives us a taste for spiritual things. Not that it's always full of consolations, but nonetheless it's just true to say that prayer gives us a taste where we come to enjoy, love, and rest in spiritual realities. Of course, most of all, our Lord's person himself. When there's not that prayer, then we don't have a taste for spiritual realities. And in that emptiness, we do what? We turn to bodily comfort. So we're, we're driven to have more comfort because there's no spiritual comfort, particularly in our life. Think then of how this need for comfort turns around then and is also a cause of our lack of prayer. We all know from experience 
a real prayer life is not bodily easy. It's not, is it? Whether it's because you have to get up early in the morning or whatever it is. It's not bodily easy. And so to the extent that we become accustomed to comfort and its importance, we are hindered from pursuing the prayer life. Consumerism, something that Pope John Paul II loved to say, was, was so characteristic of our society. Consumerism. What do we mean by consumerism? It's an attachment to acquiring more than we need. Consumerism doesn't necessarily mean that we're, we're, we're out there purchasing and consuming anything that's bad. Consumerism just is being attached and driven to things we don't need. And of course, we're being constantly, constantly pushed to pursue things that we don't need, aren't we? That's the whole point of a multi-billion dollar industry in advertising, to draw out our desires for things that we all know we don't need. So how is it that consumerism is a fruit of the lack of prayer and leads back to it? Really, it's the same structure of what we just said about comfort. Prayer gives us a taste for spiritual goods. If we don't have that filling our life, in our interior emptiness. We turn to consuming stuff. And then, it holds our attention. We actually shop as a pastime. So much of our time and attention is, uh, gotta, gotta get that, gotta get that, gotta get that. See how that turns around and distracts us. Was it something in itself evil? No, but it's so common, such an indicative part of our culture. Final one is pornography. They say it's the biggest business on the internet. I don't think that would surprise any of us. We don't have to say much about this in as much as, again, the structure of it's very similar to what we were just talking about. It's a fruit of a lack of prayer. And it's a cause of a lack of prayer. An incredibly haunting insight from St. Thomas Aquinas will not require much comment. He says that those who know not the delights of the spiritual life tends to turn to sex. Can you think of a more haunting diagnosis of our civilization? Those who know not spiritual delights tend to turn to sex. So the interesting thing, when St. Augustine would say, the only way to be chaste is to pray, I'm convinced it was, of course it makes, it, it's fitting and good to pray for chastity, but I don't think that's primarily what he meant. 
What he meant is when we have a habit of what the masters call mental prayer, sustained, deep, interior, personal prayer, we'll be chased. Because we wouldn't ever want to be otherwise. That's much stronger than just, Lord, make me chase and kind of wait for the divine touch of magic. <laughs> you understand the point. So, the antidote. Well, you already know what I'm going to say the antidote is. The antidote is prayer. The antidote to the culture of death is prayer and, in light of those other reflections, avoiding all the aspects of this culture that keep us from it. And so we look at our lives and we look at the structures of our culture and ask, what do we need to say no to? What do we need to say yes to in order to cultivate the fundamental arts of being a Christian, namely the art of personal interior prayer. I'd like to throw out that we could say to ourselves, and I take a point here from Father Lean, he says, there's so much we can do to prepare ourselves for prayer, but what if we even be bold and put it like this? Why don't we see our whole day as being about either praying or something that will help get us ready to pray. Isn't that an incredibly bold way to look at your day? How, how, how Christian? I mean, I mean, note this is not hyperpiety. It's not you have to always be praying the rosary. No, no, note how we put it either praying or something that would help get you ready for prayer. Good human things help us get ready for prayer. If we lived in a healthier culture, this would be much more obvious. The interaction of friends is a good preparation for prayer. Beautiful music can be a very good preparation for prayer. A walk enjoying God's creation can be a beautiful preparation for prayer. It's not saying that we have to always be praying. And it's not even making the point that also has its place in, of kind of turn everything into a prayer. There's obviously an aspect of that with the, with the morning offering. But here we're focusing on this aspect of look, even if we do turn everything into prayer, at the heart of the matter here is the prayer that I'm suggesting it's in question here that is the antidote to the culture of death is this sustained disciplined mental prayer that we have to set aside time and form a habit of deeply cultivating and that in itself is an art So in conclusion then, I'd like to throw out that if we are praying as we are, if we in this room are praying as we are, 
it truly would not be an exaggeration to say that right here begins the end of the culture of death. In any case, if we truly are cultivating mental prayer, in any case, it would be the, the beginning of the end of much of how the culture of death has been killing us. I'd like to end with a quotation uh, from Father Lean. It's the third one down on that same side that we've just been looking at. And it's, it does a nice thing I'm not going to pursue at the moment, but just I've been putting all this emphasis on mental prayer, which of course is something distinct from liturgical prayer. They can be closely connected. But I particularly love this beautiful one because it makes that connection. Prayer, mortification, and silence. Quick footnote. Two things. So, so non-culture of death, mortification, silence. Prayer, mortification, and silence prepare the soul for the action of the Blessed Eucharist. Isn't that powerful? Once the obstacles are cleared away from the soul, this great sacrament of union accomplishes in its perfection that which is its special effect, namely the creation of a union of spirit between the soul and Jesus. Thank you very much for your attention. Are we witnessing the return to a pre-Christian pagan mentality? And if not, how does this worldview differ from it? Uh, well, that's a, that, that, that's a, that's a great question. Um, um, I don't think I can give a sufficient answer to that, but I'm going to throw two quick thoughts at you. One is, um, in, in many fundamental ways, I'd say, yes, yes, we are. We're returning to a view that does not put the true God first and therefore has everything out of place. Um, that's the yes. I say, the, the, to a certain extent, no, because I say what we're doing is much worse. Yeah, right. It's much worse because it's a rejection of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And what we are witnessing now is a rejection of Christianity. Well, in the, the pagan world was not rejecting Christianity. It was groping in darkness, waiting for the fulfillment of Christianity. Now, 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 again, it's easy then for us to look around and stomp our feet and say, we all stop rejecting Christianity. Or we could say, um, you know, what, why aren't we living it better? But I would say we, it, it's, um, this, is, that's why this culture of death is much, is much more potent uh, in, in its, in its um, death dealing than, than a simply pagan one was because of the aspect of natural rejection of Christ. Is, is, is that okay as a, as a start? Do you, you want to follow up? Or? Okay, yes, sir. Problem of mental distractions or mind wandering in our <laughs> prayer life, for example. I'm sure you've been asked that many times before, but what are, what are your recommendations? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad you asked that because I'll tell you something that I uh, really enjoyed learning from uh, my teacher, St. Thomas Aquinas, other teachers too, um, on this is a very simple thing about um, humans psychologically that I think that can help. And, and that is um, the central role of imagination. It, so, it sounds very simple, 
But um, what St. Thomas says is where your imagination is, is where your thoughts are, period. If, 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 you're, if you start to imagine something, you are thinking about it. There's really no such thing as calling something into your imagination without thoughts following. So, how, this, of course, there's, there's, no, there's no silver bullet to stop all distractions, but uh, I'd say that that point is very fruitful for thinking about what are some things that are causing me distraction that maybe I didn't realize, and then also how do I, how do I try to overcome it? So uh, e even things as, uh, well, the, the old, um, the great old phrase of custody of the eyes is, 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 is a very important discipline in how we're disciplining our imagination, which then also dis is, is a way of disciplining us as far as then our thoughts running wherever. And um, so, so even think, think in terms of a kind of purification of the imagination, um, and this is again one of the ways I think the culture of death, uh, particularly in the form of arts and entertainment that are, that are so ubiquitous, so, so loud, so, so period, um, um, that uh, it's, it's so easy to be distracted by them and have those things coming back into our, our thoughts. So thinking in terms of trying to, we can only do it so much, but purify our imagination, try to set aside images, and a great suggestion John Paul II had is replace them with good images. That's why he loved that. Never came back to. Him. That's why he loved the rosary. And if you read his letter on the rosary, he says what we're doing by spending that time meditating on those mysteries is we're, we're filling our imagination, which will help keep our minds focused. So finally, I would just say also um, when we find ourselves being distracted, we just exercise the practice of what could I start to imagine right now? Because often that's easier than what to, how can I start to think about something? I mean, how do you start to think about something? It's harder to just start thinking. It's easier to start imagining. There's a thought for you. Thanks for a very, 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 very good question. Yes, ma'am. Okay, I understand prayer, mortification. But silence, preparing the soul for the action of the Blessed Eucharist. As a third order Carmelite, we are required to do half an hour of silent meditation. And every time I do it, I just like sit there and I end up either falling asleep or imagining things that I shouldn't imagine or, you know, thinking about the day and, anyway, getting angry about it or being happy about it or whatever. Right. But silent meditation, I mean, it's like, okay. Sometimes I get so bored, I say, okay, God, I'll give you three seconds to tell me something. Okay, time's up. And I start talking, you know? It's difficult. I, that, I, I, that, that, that's a fabulous point. And, and, and of course, um, there's, there's much in various spiritual traditions that, um, in the church that could address that. But I'd like to just throw this at you. Um, uh, spiritual masters always want to bring us back to Scripture. And I, I think... Uh, um, I mean, silent meditation doesn't have to mean that we don't use it. But what, what, what the masters say is, you, you need to have something to to get you off the ground, to get the to get the meditation started. It's it's it's, it's the real masters that uh, oh, they find themselves having a few free minutes, and they're and there they go. All right, that, that, that's, that tends to be beyond most of us, that we can work on that type of thing. So, so what do we do? We turn, this is why God has given us scripture, he's given us our word, his words there, with all these amazing, powerful images. 
Our Lord was the master teacher. He knew. He made us with our imaginations. He doesn't teach angels by giving them parables. The whole point of a parable is to form your imagination for for both of these points. And so he, he wanted us to be imagining him as a shepherd. I mean, in a sense, you can almost kind of chuckle at that. I mean, the angels, I mean, what do the angels do when they think of God with a crook in his hand? (laughs) But God wants us to picture him with that staff. And so, so there's nothing like scripture to fill our imagination, to give us something. Will there still be the dry times, the hard times? Yes. But I just, I, I, my, my, my main thought is, is, and that's also, of course, why we're, we're given the rosary. You don't have to have scripture there with you, because then you can just go back to some aspect of one of those mysteries and start meditating upon it, and then have that be the beginning, as it were, then you, you, you take off from there. And we still might fall asleep, and God understands all that. But, 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 but to be consistently coming back and cultivating it, we can through various structures in our day. Someone over the break was saying how helpful the, the uh, uh, exercises of St. Ignatius are in setting up structures in your day, at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, certain things you do, is you set a plan. And then you stick to that. And at least there's a structure within which mental prayer happens. And sometimes it happens better than other times. But if we haven't set up that structure, we know it's not going to happen. Um, there was a, there was another uh, yes ma'am. Um, given the present administration and some of the changes, would you say that the culture of death that we presently experiences has intensified? And if so, the antidote the antidote again is just more prayer, correct? Um, it, it, indeed, and I think you know I, I think it's, it's it's really good for us as 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 Christians, to be able to be explicit about that. I mean, in any way you slice it, we're experiencing something quite dark right now. And, 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 and that um, is, is something that we have to trust in God, but it should make us, I think, re- you know, renew our effort. And, and that's it actually was one of the main reasons I chose today to emphasize this aspect of we don't want to get into the habit too much of blaming others. And I'll say that's what you were doing. I, I, I mean, we very much have to recognize when, when the forces against us are ramping up, okay, we've got a problem, we've got a bigger problem, and we have more that we have to deal with. Absolutely. But, but fundamentally, what is the antidote? It's again, turning to prayer. I think it's, it's more meaningful to say, turn to prayer as, as I just kind of like that phrase of a prayer warrior. Of, 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 of transforming ourselves through prayer. So it's not just, oh, now we need to pray simply in the sense of let's ask God to spare us. No, I mean, let's pray so as to be transformed. And if we're transformed, we will be the force to, well, in any case, again, I mean, God doesn't promise us that we're going to be able to defeat as it were, the bad guys in this life. We know that the church will survive. Things might get a whole lot worse. And we might be called upon to be martyrs. And I, you know, I've started, my wife and I are starting to talk about what point do we make some of these things explicit in this day and age to our children. You know, one thing we know, children, that if we're growing together in prayer, no matter what happens, 
matter how bad things get, if we are being transformed in prayer, no matter what happens, we'll be ready. And we'll be giving God the praise if our culture gets much worse or by the grace of God if it turns around. Either way, our preparation we must be doing is, is a real interior discipline at this point. Again, there's, there's much more that could be said. Thanks, thanks, thanks for that question. Um, <laughs>